impressive. Brittany, come on, come on. All right, I'm very excited to be here today. Uh, I've known uh, Kenny a long time, Tim a long time. Uh, we've been uh, friends for quite a few years, been through some of the wars together, and uh, you know, I'm very, very honored to be in a place uh, like the Remembrance today. I'm excited. Family worship always makes it even more exciting and fun. Kids, I'll do my best. Um, my name's Dave Ludwig. I am a father of four, husband of one. I uh, was, uh, lived many years here in the South Bay, uh, moved up. Uh, I actually am a teacher, and now I'm an administrator at an elementary school, so this feels very normal to me. Uh, I am also, uh, you know, I'm missing the South Bay a lot. And I, I live in the Palisades now, so actually the drive wasn't too bad. Nobody's on the road on Sundays, so I got down here pretty quickly. I have been, uh, preached here one other time. Was when you guys were in that church? I don't even remember where that was, <laughs> but um, this is nice. I like this. Feels a little bit, little bit. This feels very cool to me. And you guys, this is a great crowd. Excited for two services coming up. Excited for what the Lord is doing. Um, I'm just going to open us up in prayer, and we're going to get started talking about kingdom people. Uh, Father, thank you uh, for your faithfulness in our lives. Lord, thank you that you, uh, God, your grace compels us to you, Lord. It compels us to an atmosphere that you've created for us, Lord, to live in joy and peace and hope in our lives. And I pray today, God, that people would experience that. The gospel, God, would be clear and explicit today, Lord, that you, a faithful God, came into our lives and continue to, to reveal yourself to us every day, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. I'm going to try to match that amazing announcements energy level if I can. All right. I'm going to talk a little bit from the book of Hebrews. Hebrews. Um, kind of a, an, a great book in the Bible. A little background on the book of Hebrews before I get into the actual text that we're going to talk about today. Uh, the book of Hebrews was written... Uh, by someone who is unnamed. We actually don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. Uh, scholars agree that it absolutely is meant to be part of the canon of Scripture, but is not um, clear who the author is. Uh, but it is written to Jewish believers. It's written from the perspective of, of Jewish people who have come to a knowledge and understanding of Jesus as their Lord. Um, and it kind of the big picture theme is that, that Christ is supreme over all things, including the law. And so I want to talk about that a little bit. The Hebrews chapter 10, which is where our text comes from today, it begins, it walks through some of the limitations of the law. The law itself is not bad. Meaning uh, the Ten Commandments, the Old Testament, the Torah, the law that the Jewish people live by, not bad, but it's limited. And that even sacrifices themselves, while they demonstrate the kind of the pain and the idea of shed blood for sin, are limited and that the essence of the new covenant is that there needed to be one sacrifice for all, to cover all sin forevermore. And what's beautiful about what we're going to get into today, to today is that this is the concept of grace that you guys have been pouring over the last few weeks. And so we're going to take this concept of grace, this amazing foundational bedrock of Christendom, if you will, and we're going to take this concept and we're going to blow it out and see how it actually impacts the way we live our everyday lives. Because this concept of grace is not meant to be a nice thing that we have in a nice box and we look at and say, yeah, grace is a good thing. It's not meant to be something that we just kind of talk about and say, yeah, grace is a good thing. It's not meant to be the thing we say before we eat our meal at night either. 
See, grace is meant to infect and impact every element of our lives. It's meant to, when we leave, you talk about being outside the church walls, grace is everywhere, okay? So it's the bedrock of our faith, it's the foundation of our salvation, but it's also what basically compels our lives. And so that's where we're going to begin today. I want to start in verse 19 of Hebrews chapter 10. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That's where we're going to live today. And as I said, this idea that Kenny... And, and Kenny and Brittany have so eloquently put forth from the pulpit the last few weeks. This concept of grace is the bedrock for everything. So my question for us to begin with today is in light of this grace, God's grace, what we've been learning about, praying over, getting inside of our hearts, in light of that, how then shall we live? What does kingdom living, living as citizens of the kingdom of God, what does it mean? What does it look like? In our lives, because now, and as Brittany, Brittany mentioned in her announcements, even is a time where the people of God need to understand how we're meant to live in the culture in which God has placed us. Three times in this text, it uses the words "let us." You know, it talks about "let us drawing near," "let us hold fast," "let us consider," and this isn't the kind of "let us" where, you know, every single night my kids say, "Let us have dessert." Let us have dessert. Let us do this, right? It's not that kind of lettuce where there's a pleading. It's an entrance. It's a welcoming. It's an invitation to a banquet that has been provided for us. And in a sense, what God is saying, it's like, it's as if, you know, my wife's a wonderful cook. She's so, she kindly makes dinner for our family. Our kids are varying levels of thankful for that meal usually, okay? Usually not the right side. I almost have to prep them sometimes, like, don't complain. This one time, don't complain, okay? It's good for you. But me, I've learned never to complain, always to be very thankful. Well, my, some of the dishes, maybe you, maybe you guys out there, um, I'm not a great cook, but my wife is. So when I get to come to the dinner table, sometimes I get that meal that I'm really excited about, right? And my wife makes these really good enchiladas. I love her enchiladas. And, she, and, and it's as if, you know, she spends time and she puts effort and she's really like, you know, researched how to make these, and she makes them very well, and she puts them down on the table, and we set the table, we come down, we sit down, and in that moment, this, this feast has been created for me, and I sit down, and I look, my wife's excited, I'm going to have what I love, and she made it for me, and I sit down, and I, and I say to her, this is great, but you know, I just popped off a bag of Doritos, I'm good. Well, that's essentially, <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? Can you imagine that, how that would go over? Yeah, I finished a big gulp and a Twinkie too. This, this is essentially what's happening when we refuse to step into the let us of this part of the text. Where God has created, whoa, has created a banquet for us. He's created a feast for us. And we choose at times to not enter into that feast. 
We do. And then, so uh, what I want to get into the, to today is how does, how does grace kind of demonstrate, okay, the feast is ready, it's been prepared, how do we enter in? And that's the living that we're looking at. So four key things I want to kind of pull out of this text today that we want to talk through. And the first one is, is handled in the very first part of this text, okay, where he says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. Grace enables us to live confidently. Grace enables us to live confident, confidently. See, the co- confidence is the belief you can rely on someone or something. What our society has created in confidence is really what they would call self-confidence, the confidence in who you are. But the problem with self-confidence is none of us are really confident in ourselves. We're not really, truly, always confident because guess what? We fail. We make mistakes. So yes, some days we, we nail it. We have that perfect thing we say. We're in that meeting where we come up with that amazing plan, all right? We make that great meal. If we're a kid and we're in a sporting event, we score a goal, all right? We, we hit the winning basket, whatever it might be. But the reality is, is there's days we miss, days we fail, days we're down, days we bark at our kids. How many of us got in a fight on the way to church today? All right. You know what I'm saying, it's always fun too, right? You walk into church and you're, you, know, you, got, you got your smile and they're all good and you know you just barked at your kids. It's never happened to me before, but I'm sure it's some of you guys. You never know. The confidence we're talking about here is not in our flesh. See, Paul kind of writes this out or in, in his letter to the Philippians, right, in chapter 3, where he says, where he talks about himself putting no confidence in his flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence, he says, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then he goes into this list of ways in which Paul, the apostle, could have confidence, right? He's a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. He gets the law. He knows his Bible. He's a Pharisee. He's got the zeal. He's blameless, he says. But yet Paul says that's death for us. That's a danger for us. If we begin to think that what we've done, how we look, how tall we are, how strong we are, if we're built like Kenny, if we sing like Tim, that makes us, that's our confidence, okay? If we believe that, we are destined for failure and our confidence will be easily shaken. But what grace shows us is that the work of the cross is final. And therefore, what we've placed our confidence in, the cross of Christ, is final. It's com- accomplished. It is finished. And not only that, what Ephesians 1 says is that God proactively chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters. This, so not only is the work done, and we're confident in the work, we're confident that God has chosen us. I'll never forget when I was a freshman in high school and I wanted to play on the baseball team, right? And you would not believe this now. When I was a freshman in high school, I was about 5'2 and maybe 100 pounds, okay? I grew, I was, I was a late bloomer, okay? And so I was a scrawny kid going out with like, you know, and, and some of you see this when your kids are just getting like 8th, ninth grade. Like there's certain kids who have like a beard already, right? And then there's other kids who are like, hey, how you doing? You know, there's like those, that level. I was the, uh, hey, how you doing? Yeah, I was that kid, right? 
and I'm going out there with these mammoth kids. We had like 100 kids come out for baseball tryouts, and there are cuts. It's not like a lot of, lot of kind of when we're youth sports, we get to play. But when you get to high school, you start to get cut, and they have to be chosen. And I'll never forget the day I went up to the athletic office window at Santa Monica High School, and I saw my name on the freshman team. In that moment, I was like, okay, I have been chosen I can do something, and it's been recognized as well. And in the same way, God has chosen you. Regardless of the fact that maybe you had to kind of push yourself to get out of bed, maybe you got the elbow from the wife, whatever it is, you came here today, but don't for a second believe that this was not the initiative work of God that has brought you to this place today. And in that, you need to have confidence that God has a purpose in your life, and he is planning on using you to bring grace and to live in grace in the world in which we live. And see, this is the atmosphere that God is creating all through the Bible. All right? We see this consistently, right? Boldly approach the throne of grace, right? He wants you with boldness to come. All right? There's an idea there that God desires that we, we feel like he is a father, right? Think about, it, think about our kids, the desire that we have. If you have children, your desire as your kids get older is that they come to you. They ask you questions. They, they, there's relationship, that there's an atmosphere you're creating, and I know we're not perfect in this, that feels welcoming to our children. It feels inviting to them, that they want to actually be around us. And you can get through the teenage years, because guess what? They're just not going to want to be around you then. But they will. You want them, and in moments you'll see it still. Is this atmosphere that God has created. And this is why Jesus says things like, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. He doesn't say, Come to me when you have your act together and you're brimming with strong confidence and your life is in perfect order. Come to me only then. No, he says, Come when you're weary and you're heavy and you're beaten down. Come. Because he's creating an atmosphere in which you should have confidence and enter into. Imagine if, if our kids felt like they had to come and ask if they could hug us, okay? We treat God like that sometimes. Like we're supposed to have this like thing nailed down and then we can come. That we fight, get in a fight on the way to church and therefore we are disqualified some, somehow from entering in. No, the reality is, is we come with all our stuff. And the confidence is not, is not in that we have, have this thing together. Our confidence is not in that we've, we've, we've had this amazing week and we've led 80 people to Christ. Our confidence is in the bedrock of our faith, the grace of God. Our confidence is in the truth of Scripture and what it means that you're even here today. That's where our confidence is. And we'll never understand grace until we're ready to put our depravity right at, willingly at the feet of Christ. That's where our confidence lies. As long as we continue to put our confidence in accomplishments, our name, our family, our position in the community, as long as we think we can boast about what we've done and that somehow is going to bring us and make us confident, we're going to miss out on the abundant life that Jesus spoke of. And that's the beauty of our gospel, and that's the beauty of grace. The truth of God's grace enables us to have confidence because we're confident in Him. We're confident in Christ. The second thing I want to talk about is where we begin our let us part of this scripture is that grace enables us to live proactively, proactively in relationship to God. Verse 22 says, let us draw near with a true heart 
in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us draw near. The gospel of grace reminds us that we've been made right with God. The work of the cross is finished. We have confidence now. We, we know that that work is real. See, picture a doorway with, with, with the door ripped off its hinges. We know the door has been ripped off. It's for us. We're allowed to go. We have confidence in that. Yet, are we going to enter through that doorway? We, he calls us to boldly move towards him. He's created the atmosphere, right? The inviting atmosphere. He's declared it and made it. He's quickened your heart. But in truth, far too many of us, while we believe this and we hear it on a Sunday morning, we do not enter in. And why? We're fearful. Rejection. Fearful. Conviction. Yet think about the prodigal son. The story of the prodigal son goes off, spends his father's riches, ends up eating in pig troughs. Yet something in him knows there's an atmosphere his father has created that he can go back there. And while he won't be considered a son, he feels he can go and he can eat better because he'll be a servant. All he brings with him is his humility. All he brings with him is, is the idea that he messed up. And what happens? The father rushes out and greets him. He exceeds the expectations when we enter through that door in confidence. Our father will exceed and blow our expectations out of the building. That's the God we serve. Because he made a way where there was no way. He made a way where there was no way. He made, as the Bible says, rivers in the desert. There are no rivers in the desert. But with God, there are rivers in the desert. Because he does the impossible. The Bible emphasized this over and over. God is calling us. God has given us confidence. He is our confidence. He pursues us. Yet we must respond with confidence, which is already there. And ask yourself this question. Do we live our lives in such a way that we are moving toward God? Do you live your everyday lives? I'm not talking about coming to church. I'm talking about your everyday life when you wake up in the morning. How often do we ask ourselves that question? I think two things in the morning, snooze button and coffee. Those are the two things I first think of. All right? I would love to sit up in bed and go, how can I serve you, Lord, today? This is the day that the Lord has made. Amen. Yeah, I don't do that. I'm just, I'm just being honest. I don't do that. But how great would it be is if when I do, maybe, maybe after the coffee, okay, I get up, and that's the way that I approach my day. I go into the situations, the boundaries of our dwellings, if you will, from Acts, and we go into those places, whether it's our, uh, you know, our schools if you're a student, or whether it's your workplace if you're an adult, whether it's in your friend group, and we ask, are we moving, am I moving towards God? In these relationships, am I moving towards God and how I'm affecting other people? The third thing grace enabled us to do is live hopefully. Live with hope. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. See, because, we have we have, we, because of the grace of God, we have confidence, right? Not in ourselves, but in God. We are confident not in an idea, we're not confident in our, in our, even in our country or a president or a job or a checkbook, but in a limitless, 
perfect, sacrificial, sovereign God. Just as Kenny said last week, right, we're confident in a king who bled for us. I love that. We are therefore compelled by the grace of God and clothed in confidence. God's spirit drapes us in this wardrobe of confidence. So in confidence, we proactively draw near. These are the first two points I made. As we get closer and closer, the hope of Christ radiates, uh, radiates and infects us. It feeds our confidence and our desire for him. I love what A.W. Tozer describes the grace of God like the sun. And he says, men can flee from the sunlight to dark and musty caves of earth, but they cannot put out the sun. That's the grace of God. It's there. It's available. It infects us. It's inside of us. Our spirit cries out for it and longs to live in it. And how important is this right now in the time in which we live? I think about this. I went to school at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. All right? I grew up in Southern California and went to Michigan. All right? If you've been to Michigan before, the winters are something. <laughs> There's something. And you have this nice snowfall that comes probably about October, November, and that same snow is still on the ground in March. The same snow, the actual same snow. It's black now, probably, maybe some tires and stuff. You know why? Because the sun hasn't been seen in four months, all right? It's gray skies. And so you're freezing, all right? You're freezing cold. You have that same snow, you're kind of grumpy, and then there's this day, and it happens every year. It happens in March or April, somewhere maybe you might sneak out at the end of February, where the sun comes out. All right, the sun comes out. It doesn't matter. It's probably still like 45 degrees, but 45 degrees is like 80 here, and when you're in Michigan winter, it's like 40, and the sun comes out, and people are like flying out of their houses, all right? You're coming out, and that sun, it feels like every, you know, there's a thousand suns, they're all focused on you, and it's the perfect temperature. It's like perfect. It's like that moment where you're just like, ah, Right, and you feel that's the rays of that sun, they're like percolating in your, if that's even a word, right? They're in your bloodstream, and you feel this invigoration and this energy. And that's, and that's like what we have when we experience and walk fully in the grace of God. We're making movements towards Christ. We feel like that ice of despair. We've all experienced despair. That ice of despair is melted off of us, and the hope of his presence invades us and how important is this all right Brittany referenced the world the world in which we live right now the divided nation okay if you've been on social media people are losing their minds they're losing their minds all right and we as the church we we have to look at this as opportunity we can bring the atmosphere of the presence of the living God and he will be that perfect sun in the lives of all around us they will see who our hope is in. Okay? Because the losing minds thing we're seeing, it's because people are placing their hope in everything other than we know what, we know where it should be. We know who is the hope of our calling. Who is our hope? We know it. We have to live in that. We have to invite people into that. This is the idea where he mentions here, hold fast the confession of our hope. We hold fast without wavering. A hold fast is like an immovable anchor, okay? This term is actually now something you look up, the hold fast, all right? I remember learning this seventh grade. I go on this trip to Catalina. We learn about life science and marine biology and kelp, you know, seaweed. The thing that anchors seaweed to the ocean floor, 
or to other things is called the hold fast. It's an anchor in woodworking. When you're working on a, a piece of wood, you, you clamp it down with what? A hold fast. It clamps down. It holds together. It keeps things anchored to what they need to be anchored to. And we're called to be anchored to Christ. To be anchored. To hold fast. And we are wired to hold fast to something. We are wired to want to put our faith in something. That's the way we're made. And Jesus, what Paul is, sorry, what the writer of Hebrews is challenging Hebrew Christians to is don't hold fast to the law. Don't hold fast to tradition. Hold fast to the grace of God. Hold fast to Christ. Hold fast to something that is immutable, that is unchanging, forever. Perfect love. Perfect in every way. In times of great hopelessness, when our sin and the culture in which we live are attempting to choke us to death. We've got to come out of our caves and into this bask in the sun of his presence. We find that's what we need. Closeness to God is the key. The pursuit of God is what unlocks this hope. Guys, we need hope. We need to bring hope into the world right now. Hope is not something we can tangibly feel when we're disconnected from our Lord. So we're entering through that doorway. We're entering in in confidence because the sun doesn't shine in a cave. Okay, sun doesn't shine in a cave. We need to be in his presence. We need to be in him. Fourth thing is grace enables us to live relationally. I want to hang out here for a little bit. This idea of, of relationship and being relational. If we take that idea of a cave analogy one step further, we look into isolation versus being in community. It's not easy to be in community all the time. It's not. You know, when, when the Bible talks about um, relationship and connection, it's not always that everyone's just super happy, and it's always around the people they want to be around. All right? Your job, your school, your church, might be a couple people that don't love to be around. All right? But God has placed those people with purpose in your lives. I'm going to talk about that. In verses 24 and 25, the writer says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And the day is the day, if you know what I mean. It's like the day. It's like doomsday day. So how do we do this is this part of the sermon, all right? My biggest fear, and I'm going to talk probably about this a couple times before, before we end, is that we come into church... And we hear this kind of, we hear this sermon, and it's putting a bunch of yokes on everyone of all the stuff you have to do now. All right, you got to go read your Bible every day. Great thing. You should be challenged in that. But it's not, it's not the pathway to your salvation. It's not going to make God love you more. Okay, this is clearly stated the last couple of weeks in, in the topics of grace. But what I do want to know is that when we're saying things like activity, you know, it's, there's not a have to to-do list. But there is activity we're invited into when God says and calls us to obedience. When God calls us to do things, we have to remember, yes, it's for his glory, but it's also for our good. It's for what's best for us. He recognizes that if I tell you to do something, it's because I want you to experience joy and peace in an abundant life. And so when we're talking about this part of the sermon, we're saying, how do we do these things? How do I wake up and want to desire to know God and get into his presence? How do I have greater levels of confidence? How do I enter through that door? See, we know that we have grace-enabled confidence because of the work of our sovereign, perfect king, 
who had created a pathway to freedom that did not exist before. The pathway could not have been carved out on any strength. Right? The pathway to God, relationship, connection to God was not possible apart from the sovereign work of God. Not possible. So we know that he did it, he's responsible for it, and we can put our confidence in that. We know that we're called to proactivity, and we're adorned in the clothing of confidence. That it was not our works that beckons us forward, but God's amazing grace. And we know that our only hope is in pursuit of him. And we're meant for that pursuit. We're made for that pursuit. That's what we know. So we have the confidence. We're called to proactivity. We know, as I said before, that we have a hold fast for our souls. to something to set our hope in. The immovable, perfect love to place our hope in. You see, it's not that we pray for hope. It's that we seek the Lord, and the byproduct is hope. The presence of God, when you're around and you guys have been in these places, when you're in that place in prayer, in the throne room, in relationship, in conversations with other believers, when God is moving powerfully, powerfully through you, you sense hope. It's not just because you say, God, give me hope one day. There's nothing wrong with that, but drawing close to God, the byproduct is hope. He calls us one step further than just the three things I've already talked about. He calls us to people. He calls us to fellowship. He calls us to community. His strong encouragement in living this out. See, a hundred times in the New Testament, a hundred times in the New Testament, one another is used. A hundred times, one another, one another. Genesis 2, God says it, not man. Okay, it's very, very clear. Man does not say, God, you need to give me a wife or you need to give me someone to hang out with. God says, you know what? It's not good for man to be alone. What's interesting about that is God said everything was good. So God saw there's something even greater than what he called good already. And it's not good for man to be alone. It's not good. So he knows that we need relationship. Our confidence comes from Jesus. It doesn't come from our relationships. We're proactive because the pathway was, was carved out. But see, we're reminded of that confidence by our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're proactive because, not because, just because we're compelled by grace, because we're pulled, we're held accountable, we're pushed by our brothers and sisters in Christ. We have hope, not just because it's whispered to us all the time by the Spirit of God, because it's shouted at times by our brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm kind of shouting right now, so there you go. That works. All right? Three times he says this word, let us. He's inviting us into this place, so consider. What does that mean to consider when he says, let us consider how to stir up one another? Okay, if you're going to really walk that translation out, really what it's saying is it's not just consider ways to do it like good ideas. It's actually saying, consider the people that God has placed in your life, fellow believers, and consider their lives and how you can encourage them to live out the gospel. That's love and good works, right? To live out. How can consider the relationships and look around. How easy it is to have your buddies and your friends, all you guys know Christ, and you go out and you hang out and you get coffee, you get a beer and you're chilling and you're enjoying life together. But no one is considering how can we spur each other on to greater things in the kingdom. And see, this is the kind of fellowship and relationship that God is calling us to. Those things are great. Enjoying watching the Super Bowl next week, hanging out with your friends, awesome, amazing things. But what the challenge here the writer is saying is, how do we consider ways to lead, encourage, challenge, exhort the guys around us, the people around us, to greater things in Christ? How do we do that? That's something we're called to consider. Are we stirring one another up in those ways? See, the love and good works 
is not, it's not the, you know, pathway to salvation. It's not where salvation is. It's not, it's not the route to salvation. We know this. It's the fruit of it, right? Love and good works. If you're seeing love and good works happen in the lives, in your life, that's evidence, in a sense, of the truth of the gospel and in the anchor in your heart. There's evidence there. Okay, it, the evidence does not prove to God anything, but guess what? The evidence has impact and affects the world and affects those around us. And it just reminds us of, that's the idea of fruit. We know that these three things we talked about, confidence, proactivity, and hope, they're great, they're, they're important things, important, tr- important truths to pull out. But sometimes we're confident, but we're not very proactive. Sometimes we may be proactive, but we lack the confidence, so we approach God, and we don't really know what to say, what to ask, and really if he's, if he's even capable of doing what we're doing. Sometimes even in the place when we have confidence and we're proactive, we find that the, the cares of this world, all right, like those weeds or thorns and thistles the Bible talks about, choke that hope out of us. This is where we need one another. This is why God has put us in a position of knowing of, of desiring one another and god knows this he knows this about us he knows our sin nature the bible says he knew us in our mother's womb he knows every bit about us and he knows how easily a million things can prevent us from walking fully in freedom and for this reason he calls us to consider each other he knows we won't be we're going to struggle to take our eyes off ourselves and our own stuff he knows we're going to struggle being trying to find our confidence in ourselves and our works he knows we're going to struggle with that he knows we're going to go to the caves sometimes. We're going to hide sometimes. We're not going to want it. We're, we're going to be in a tough place, and we're not going to want community and relationship because you know what? There's conviction, and it feels hard, and it's, I don't like that. He knows we're going to be fearful of the world and the things we see every day and not wanting our, our families to be exposed to those things, and we want to hide from those things. He knows that. But the reality is, is that love and good works are the outflow of relationship with Jesus, and when they're happening— there's an instant indicator of our hearts. We need to be humble enough to recognize this truth. We need to not hide in the caves. We need to embrace community because here's the very important kind of cautionary moment in this text right here is when he says this line. He says, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. See, reality is, is like this is, this is right here. This is right or had a point in writing this at an important moment right and realizing that many of us do hide and many of us will hide and i want it you have to look a little bit of this almost like anecdotally or you know look you know sometimes we can find what we need to find in the word of god but sometimes we just need to be logical about like reality and tell me how many people you know grow in their faith in christ in isolation Grow in their faith and good and, and towards love and good works and understanding of the grace of God when they're by themselves in a cave. You know, I remember this guy I used to know. He would, you know, he disappeared for a little while. We'd call him and he'd, be, he'd say things like, God has called me to a place of solitude right now. I'm like, okay, good. I get it. You go off by yourself at times and you have that amazing interaction. But here's the thing that's very, very evident in the New Testament is that God does not necessarily call us to long periods of solitude. All right, because that's called isolation, and that's usually fleshly driven because we don't want to deal with the challenges of iron sharpening iron. Because iron sharpening iron may not always be pretty. 
There's some heat. There's some friction. And that's our relationships. And that's, and that's good. That's not bad. That's good. That's reality. That's what we're meant to be. So when thinking about living a relationship with others, consider. We're called to it. He just said it. Let us, let us do it. Let us stir up one another and not neglect to meet together. We're called to it. This isn't just church, but it does include church. It does include Sunday morning gatherings, but it includes going to events together. It includes small groups. It includes any time where you can get together with other believers because we need it. God knows we need it. It's easy to neglect it. It's easy to miss out on it. I got four kids. I got a job. I get, you know, this is reality of life. I, I you know, I, I want to go home and I want to sit on the couch sometimes. I do. Maybe every night. Don't tell anyone. All right. But, you know, maybe I just want to do that. I don't really feel like going out and, and doing these kinds of things. But you know what? I do it. I'm st- I do it sometimes. All right. Because I feel like someone's going to be like, you don't always do it. You, you do it. I do it sometimes. Why? Because I know it's good. And you know what? And, and, and you know, I'm just kind of kind of say this is like talking about the women's retreat. If your wife is not going, she needs to go. She needs to go. Because you know what? I recognize this about my wife is that she flourishes when she can get time with other women to pursue God side by side. All right? So, I, you know, I'm not trying to put a trip on you. I have no, no skin in the game. Brittany didn't ask me to say that at all. But I'm saying, true, I'm saying if your wife or if your daughter's old enough or if it's your mom, whatever it is, and I understand there are things, and I'm sure the church will find a way to help support your family if you need that. I don't want to speak for the church, but I'm sure they will. I know these guys. Get your wife to that retreat. Get your ki- women, get to that retreat, because you will find that all the things we're talking about here, that's just going to be, I mean, it's going to be like a flood of that. It's going to be like a flood of that. I'll encourage you in that. That was just off the cuff. Okay, so the last thing, though, it's easy to neglect. It's necessary if we want to stand firm. It's necessary if we really want to stand firm. Again, we already talked about the, the state of the world we're in right now. And, and division all over the place and we need to stand firm not in getting our hearts behind a certain individual man or woman we need to stand firm in the truth of the grace of god and the gospel of jesus christ so i'm going to bring the worship team back up worship team back up i'm going to kind of close here in a moment and we're going to we're going to worship god we're going to have communion too so it's a it's it's all it's a great day of remembrance today it's a great day all right but i want to make sure and again i referenced this earlier is that all the work we're talking about is enabled by the Holy Spirit. Everything I'm saying today is enabled by the Holy Spirit. All right, the quickening in your heart is enabled by the Holy Spirit. Because here's the truth. We, ser- we serve, as Kenny said, a king who bled, right? Before the foundation of the world, God had a plan and a purpose. He knew that we would fail. And so in doing that, what God did was he sent his own son into the world to live a perfect life. And he went to the cross. And on the cross, he took upon his body the very wrath of God. He bled and died so that we could have access to everything I described here. The feast in front of us is created, it's built, it's made based upon the cross of Christ. Based upon what Jesus did on that day on Calvary. And so what we want to remember and be compelled by is not our list of ways we're going to find new small groups or a men's Bible study, women's Bible study, or even the women's retreat. What we're compelled by is the activity of Jesus Christ on that day. What he did then, and that he rose from the dead, he conquered sin, sin and death. The Bible says he held the keys of sin and death. That the punishment that was 
justifiably meant for us. We deserve the punishment. That punishment was poured into the flesh of our Savior on that day. And that as a result of that, he died, rose from the dead. And not only that, he sent the helper. He sent the Holy Spirit into our lives. And if you're in this room today, it's because the Holy Spirit drew you to this place today. And he has created the Father in heaven, an atmosphere, and proven it by the blood of his Son that you can enter in together. So let's be encouraged today as we worship God, as we seek the Lord, as we take communion. Let's be encouraged about this God who loved us that much, and he wants to transform our lives and make us truly kingdom people. Amen? All right, let's worship God. Praise God.